late and uh, when we get to the end of the show and we talk about the item of the day which is no longer in existence uh, you'll find out why I had to make an update to the post for the item of the day because they're gone and uh, so when we get to the item of the day a little segment at the end of today's show will uh, tell you how to avoid missing out on well incredible deals like the one that went down today and we just liquidated the Amazon inventory it's kind of fun to be able to actually like liquidate the entire inventory of an item on Amazon I, I enjoy doing that as an affiliate. Anyway, that's not what we're going to talk about today, though. It could be one path toward wealth. And so we actually are going to talk about the wealth mindset today. But what I'm calling it is killing the poverty mindset. The number one reason that most people are not wealthy, especially in the United States and, frankly, most of the free world, and I know we're not really free, but we're a hell of a lot freer than a lot of people, is mindset. In fact, I'd say even in a lot of countries that we wouldn't think of as free, there's still a lot of wealthy people, and it's their mindset more than anything else that separates them from wealth that when, when when you have a lot of poor people, right? I actually think that the whole world can be rich. I didn't say they would be. I said they can be. I don't think there's any limit on what percentage of the population can be wealthy. I think that'll make a lot of sense today. Another thing I want to do, I want to throw out a, uh, uh, a thank you, a shout-out, whatever you want to call it, a recognition to Toolman Tim, of course, member of the Expert Council, part of the TSB community, doing amazing things. He was one of the speakers that I spoke alongside of uh, at Self-Reliance Festival. And his talk up there in Tennessee was about the poverty mindset. And uh, it made me realize when I listened to him talk about it, and he did a fantastic job, by the way. I'll, I'll come at it a little bit differently than he did today. Um, but he did a fantastic job, and he just made me realize I had not talked about this in a long time. Now, let me tell you something. This is a God's honest truth, guys. Guys and gals, right? And and, and the third genders, I don't think they're here. Um, I, I, I don't think there's a bigger preparedness topic than building wealth. Whenever there's a disaster, even in really bad scenarios, a rich dude losing his house sucks, but a poor person losing their house always sucks more. The more wealth you have, the more you can prepare. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about being like Rockefeller wealthy or anything today, but setting that as a goal is something that maybe you should do. We'll talk about why. And as you can see, Eka Mouse has arrived, and I have the scrolling banner down there. Please hit that like and hit that notification bell and hit subscribe if you haven't already done so. It really helps us out in reaching more people. And if you do not smack that like, Eka Mouse will be angry and her wrath will be terrible. So please do so if you're in the live stream anyway. If you're not in the live stream, hey, come by the video and hit the thumbs up for me. You know, later on, you can do that anytime. There's no charge to do so. Anyway, um, we're going to get in deep into mindset today. And we're going to get in deep into why this is a preparedness topic. And I really, like I was saying, I think that anybody can become wealthy, and there is no limit to how many people or what percentage of a population can be wealthy. And so we are going to have to start off by defining what wealth actually means, and that's what we'll do in just a minute. Before we do, let's hear from our sponsors of the day. Uh, they help make sure the show is here for you Monday through Thursday, four days a week now, as I have finally backed off a little bit. 
I was fed an idea today about having a Friday show that I don't have to do a lot of work for, and it might happen, maybe not the way the person sent it in, but it's a possibility. Uh, maybe the Friday flashback or something like that. Anyway, um, let's start off with our item or our uh, sponsor day number one today, Ridge Wallet. They have become an awesome everyday carry company. When Ridge first approached me, they had just finished their first ever Kickstarter launching the company. I almost said no because, well, it's just a wallet. Like, is that really going to be a good fit for my audience? They sent me one. I loved it. I loved it. And uh, once I got my hands on it, I put it in my pocket and I never took it out other than when I changed my pants or something. And I've been carrying it ever since. Really love it. And uh, I really recommend that you uh, check them out. And now they have so many other cool things. I'm so glad I said yes. Five years ago when one of their, uh, their marketing reps approached me about bringing them on, and they also do a discount for members of the MSB. And again, now they are beyond just the awesome minimalist wallets, full-on EDC company, bunch of other really cool stuff. Check them out today. They are available, of course, at Ridge.com. Now, next up, JM Bullion. I am talking about wealth today. And as you build wealth, the other thing you want to do is you want to create a wealth assurance program. Notice I said assurance, not insurance. Insurance is something you purchase in my opinion, like a policy, assurance is something you do for yourself. And one way to make sure that you're building your wealth and assuring your wealth in the future is to include precious metals in your portfolio. I recommend 5% of your net wealth in silver and or gold. And that's net wealth. That's all your wealth combined. So that would include things like the equity within your real property. So it's actually a fairly large number. Sometimes people think it's too small. If you want to do 1%, I'm okay with that. If you want to do 10%, I'm okay with that. That's kind of where I cap my recommendation. Though Everybody should have some going over to 10% is probably too heavily weighted in that direction. But I, I noticed something today on the JM website. They have copper here. And I thought maybe this would be a good way to make my point uh, about how precious metal and metal in general is a holder of value, real commodity value. So there's a little site called Coinflation that I just jumped to for those of you that are on the video. And they have a thing called base metal coin melt value calculation. What does that mean? It means you can take things like, you know, most people think of like silver quarters or dimes and put in how many you have. And it'll tell you what the face value is, but it'll also tell you, you know, how much it's really worth because of the underlying value of the metal. In 1980, we all know in 1964, at least most people do, in 1964, they stopped putting silver in our coins. But in 1982, inflation had gotten so bad and continues to be bad because inflation is cumulative. Never let anybody tell you otherwise. Um, they demonetized the penny. A lot of people don't know this one. In 1982, about halfway through the year, there was literally a penny shortage because copper got to be so expensive that people were melting pennies. And because you can't just sell the penny directly. So they were illegally, but how do you prove it, melting pennies and selling it as scrap copper. And I remember in 1982, I was in school. I was in second grade. That's how long ago this was. And we actually had like this drive thing where kids would bring their pennies in and deposit them and learn how to open a bank account in school. It was all to get pennies to stay in circulation. So they switched over to zinc with a copper cladding. So if you have a penny from 1981 and back, you know it's all copper. If you have $100 worth of pennies, pre-1982 pennies, you know what the value of them is today? $234. $234 in copper. Now, really let that sink in. So definitely consider adding some form of metal 
to your long-term wealth assurance program. And copper's interesting, but I don't see it as being a big player. You have to have too much bulk, right? That's why silver and gold hold a lot of value in a small volume. But you want to use JM Bullion, and you want to do that because they support the show you love. They give MSB members a discount. I can talk directly to the president if ever need be, and they ship all orders for a whopping free of charge, nothing, if you uh, order more than a hundred or 200 bucks worth on any given order. So there's really no reason to buy from anybody but JM Bullion if you love this show and the work that we do. With that, let's dig on into it. Like I said in my intro, we are going to have to first discover how to define wealth. That is step one. If we're going to get rid of poverty consciousness and start moving toward wealth consciousness, we're going to set goals in our lives to become wealthy. And don't be afraid. If when I say I want you to become wealthy, if that scares you, you've tuned into the right channel today. But we're going to get more scary before we're done. Coming right out of the gate, a lot of, like I said, mindset is huge. And a lot of people just don't believe that it's in their path to become wealthy. That is poverty consciousness. And as we look at poverty and the consciousness that keeps us in poverty, we have to say, well, if I don't want to be poor, then what do I have to be? And, of course, the answer, the antonym would be rich. If I don't want to be in poverty, I need to be wealthy. But what is wealth? And if we don't define wealth, we have no idea where we're going. If we don't know where we're going, there's no way we can plot a course to get there. So I'm going to give you a scenario here of somebody. And you tell me if you think this person is wealthy. person on paper has a net worth of $2 million. Are they wealthy? You're probably thinking, yeah, okay. Uh, the majority of their wealth is in their house, and they have a huge house payment. They're married to a woman who sees her mission in life, her job, her profession is spending money. This is a guy, we're going to say, okay? And uh, this person, on a, at the end of a month, ends up with almost no cash flow left. It's all gone. It's all dispersed. Maybe even some money goes into retirement and all, but they have no surplus cash flow. And if whatever they do for a living went away, that giant house and some of the other things they have to go as part of their net worth would be at supreme risk. And if they couldn't replace their income within, let's say, 90 days, they could lose everything they have and be destitute. Is that person wealthy? Well, most people would say no. Even people that have the problem that we're trying to get rid of today, poverty consciousness, they would say, no, that person's not really wealthy. They might say they should be wealthy, but they're too stupid to be wealthy because they have this incredible income that they don't know how to manage. Correct. You're right. And a person that's poor and saying, look at them, see how stupid they are. You're just as stupid. I'm sorry. This is not going to be soft. Nice, Jack, today. I'm not going to be coddling anybody. Not that I'm known for doing that as it is, but I'm going to be a little bit more uh, macho man, savage elbow in the forehead today off the top rope than maybe I usually am. Because if you have this problem, you need to hear it that way. Because anything less just gives you permission to stay comfortable in your misery. So to me, and I'd love to hear from some people here in the comments, in the live comments, because there's over 50 people now and they keep coming in and the number keeps going up. What do you, how would you define wealth? Try to drill it down into like one or two sentences for me. Maybe I'll read a few, but go ahead, put them in, and I'll tell you how I define wealth. I define wealth based on Buckminster Fuller's definition of wealth. I define wealth in time forward. So this is a weird thing. Buckminster did weird things, and in a patent on a geodesic dome, he buried into the language his thoughts on wealth. 
just because that's the kind of guy he was. And he said, wealth is defined as how many days forward you can survive without any income. If your income was killed tomorrow and you could survive a year, then you have one year of wealth. If you could survive a decade, then you could have a decade of wealth. If you could survive for 20 years, you have 20 years of wealth. And I, I like that definition. It's not my only definition. I think I'm going to like some of the definitions that you guys give me here. I'm starting to see them come in. But I really like that one. It's concrete. It's measurable. You can get your hands around it. And we can all calculate it. We, we don't think we can. But if you took everything that you actually owned that's liquid, meaning it's either cash or ca convertible to cash, you could figure out with a budget, this is how much my monthly budget is, right? And you could say, well, this is how long I could, I could service that budget forward until I went to zero. So it's calculable. I don't think you should live on that knife's edge at all. And you could also then go, but if I had to and I had to contract my expenses, what, what is discretionary? What am I willing to give up? And now your, your wealth actually increases by your willingness to decrease your expenditures. And the longer you have forward, the longer you have to do about something to do something about the problem of the, the of the income being cut off and the less likely you are to do something stupid when the income uh, runs out or, you know, and, and, and make a bad decision. It's like I've always said, right? I've always said that. What did I always say? I don't remember. I, I'm reading comments here and it got me sidetracked. Hey, I'm just going to keep going on. Sorry about that one. Uh, I'm trying to find here's missile launch says wealth is reliably doing what you want when you want. Uh, Sam says don't have to answer to someone for your money. Okay. Well, see my, there's, let's talk about that one. I, I think that's a little short sighted. I know what you mean, but, um, I guess if you, if you mean I don't have to have a job for my money, then I would agree. Then I think it's actually a pretty good definition, but there's a lot of people that have jobs or whatever, and they don't have to answer to anybody else. They're not like somebody's not supporting them. Uh, they're, they're independent or whatever, but they're managing their money poorly. You could even have a, a business of your own and be managing your money poorly. But I, I guess I overall like that when Packrat says enough money to control your time rather than occupying your time to pay the bills. I like that. Uh, <laughs> and Mr. Launch says, I didn't say it enough, apparently, uh, as to what I forgot there. Yeah. What I need to do is, is better discipline about not reading the comments while I'm in the middle of this. I get really distracted when I do that. Anyway, it's important, again, for you to define what wealth means to you. And this is a recurring theme that you will hear today. Don't short sell yourself on what that definition, definition is. Don't be like, well, if I could live like a poor person, but I have a garden so I can feed myself. And basically your definition of wealth is being a broke ass redneck with a garden out of a single white trailer. That's probably not good enough. Now, if you want to live that way, I have no problem with it. But it's probably still not good enough as far as wealth. Like if you're living that way, it should be by choice, not because it def you defaulted to it. And it's all really based on how much time you spend learning and growing. I, I found this today. When I was getting ready for the show, it just happened to show up in my feet on Noster. And for those that are not in the video, I'll explain what it is. It's a series of circles, and it's the comfort zone map. 
And the smallest circle in the middle says feel safe and in control. And that's the comfort zone. And then there's a slightly larger circle. And in that circle, it says you lack confidence, excuses, opinions, right? Excuses are like assholes. We'll come back to that at the end. And then outside of the fear zone, when you get past the fear, you get the learning zone. That's where we're acquiring knowledge and new skills and we're facing challenges. And then you have the growth zone, where if we spend enough time in the learning zone and actively applying what we're learning, we move into growth where we start living our dreams, finding our purpose and achieving our goals. And this is like, if I would have not been thinking about doing this show today, I would have saw that, thought it was nice, shared it and moved on. Because I'm just coming back from Self-Reliance Festival, listening to Tim's awesome presentation, and was doing this, I'm like, oh, look how that fits. And it led me to something else. How this map matches something that when I say it at first, you're going to think I've lost my mind. You're going to be like, Jack must have hit his head this morning or something. This is, even though there's four there, this is almost a direct corollary in its understanding to the five stages of grief, which is how we explain the process a person goes through when they find out they, let's say, have a terminal illness. And it's the, the initial is denial. So you tell somebody you got cancer, doctor tells them, like, no, you have to be wrong, recheck it, whatever, right? Just denial. And then you get angry. So you get denial and then anger, right? And after you get angry for long enough, you go into a stage they call depression. Why did this happen to me? Of all people, I'm a good guy. Why am I dying? Why not this evil person over here? Or whatever it is. One way or another, you're depressed. You don't want to do anything. You want to give up. You want to quit. And let's for the sake of this mental exercise, this is not an illness that you have any chance of beating. Right. There's a lot of people who have really serious diagnoses. But, you know, let's say it's a cancer diagnosis. Your oncologist is like we have a chance. Maybe it's 50 50, but we have a chance. here. You have no chance. Right. So then after depression comes bargaining. If I'm a better person, maybe God will save me. Maybe I can go down to uh, Mexico. They'll squirt shark piss up my nose in this new cure. And then acceptance. Acceptance is when that person says, okay, this is inevitable. I am going to die. I need to make the most of the time that I have left, put my affairs in order, tell everybody I love that I love them and do the things that I probably should have spent my whole life doing as quickly as I can before time runs out. Now, if you thought when I said this that I swapped depression and bargaining because you've heard it the other way around. The bargaining comes before the depression and then comes acceptance. You're right, but I didn't switch it. You can go look this up in 100 different places and you'll find about 50 listing it in one order and 50 listing it in another order. What is the cause of the confusion? The cause of the confusion is it's not linear meaning that the denial and anger generally are link linear. A person almost inevitably has some level of denial when getting seriously bad news, and then anger follows. And once those two stages are passed, you tend to, you know, might be angry about it, but you tend not to re-enter the stage. But once the person progresses to bargaining or depression, they generally bang around between bargaining and depression for a while. And that bargaining and depression is all about one thing. Fear. Acceptance is hard because once you accept it, it's really real. So fear keeps you trapped. If we go back to that diagram that I just described to you, the fear zone 
is what keeps you out of these other two zones. The learning and growth zone are like the, the depression, right? The bargaining and the acceptance all in one. Like once you're past fear, you can go through all of this. You have knowledge and skill development at the same time you're actually growing as long as you're applying the knowledge and skills that you're obtaining. And it is fear that holds you back because once you move into that learning and growing zone, you have to do something that's very hard for people to do. You have to accept that it's all on you and it always was. And that means anything you don't have that you wish you had, it's your fault. You don't have it. Uh, several people during this last event told me that it really resonated with them. When I say you deserve what you want, but you just haven't done the work yet. Most of the time when you tell people you deserve what you want and try it with somebody, when the opportunity comes up in a conversation, say, well, you deserve what you want. Watch them explain to you why they don't. Watch them get very uncomfortable. Right? For all the talk of entitlement attitude, and this is not entitlement attitude, but for all the talk of it, people in general – don't believe they deserve anything. That's why they want. That's why the people that have the entitlement attitude want to be given something, not because they believe they deserve it, because they think they need it, and they don't believe that there's any way for them to have it unless somebody gives it to them. That person will be broke till the day that they die, even if they win the lottery, even if their rich uncle uncle uh, dies and leaves them a fortune. They will be broke because they will have poverty consciousness till the day that they die. You have got to move past that state and you it starts with understanding you do deserve what you want but you have to do the work to get it and if you don't have it you haven't done the work yet and if that's the case then it's all your fault and i can understand why people fear accepting that because then it's going to cause a life review before you die a life review before you die before we get into the life review before you die let's 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 tackle the five stages of grief with a terminal illness right now Let's make sure that if ever it comes your way, that you are got a head start on dealing with it. I hope it doesn't. But if it does, here's the reality. You have a terminal illness right now. Every single person listening to me, every single person that ever will listen to me after I'm dead, as long as my audios and videos stay around for people to listen to, you're listening to me now in the future. And I've been dead for 50 years. You have a terminal illness. I already know this. It's called life. I will die. You will die. We will all die. When you start believing all this science fantasy shit where you're going to get implanted into a computer or something, that's the bargaining stage of the five stages in grief because you're aware of your terminal illness and you're already in a bargaining stage. Right. Um, but what's really important is that we begin this process of wealth building with an understanding of something when it comes to destroying the poverty consciousness. Tim Cook said something really interesting in his discussion. He came back to it a few times. But you don't know what it's like here. And it was honestly that that led to this episode. That was where I, I want to talk about this on a podcast episode. And he wasn't saying it as in I'm making an excuse. He was talking about how it's made as an excuse. You live in this small town. You know, maybe it's a coal town in Pennsylvania where there's no more coal. You know, people like one of my best friends, his dad, who had a good job, was a maintenance man in the projects and made $10 an hour. Now, $10 an hour was a lot more money in 1986 than it is today, but it wasn't a lot of money. 
but he was happy. And that was, that was the model of success, man. He's got a 40 hour week job with benefits and he makes 10 bucks an hour fixing shitters in the projects. Right. And so when that is success and everything below it is not success, then you live in a place that you call here. Right. And you don't know what it's like here. So when somebody says, Hey, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, do something more with yourself, build something, make something happen. They say, that's fine for you. But you don't know what it's like where I'm at. You don't know what it's like to be me. He told a story, and I'm going to bring up some other people that fit this mold, of uh, Morgan Freeman during his thing and how Morgan Freeman would go back to the place he was from. And he grew up absolutely in total poverty. And And Morgan Freeman said that people would tell him he doesn't know what it's like to live there. But Morgan Freeman did live there. But what I thought of when he said this is there's no longer a here. There's no longer a there. It doesn't exist anymore. I would say in 1985, it was still a it was still a cop out to say, but you don't know what it's like here. There was always opportunities. But the amount of opportunity was fundamentally massively less than it is today. My question for you, if you tell me would I I don't know what it's like where you are. My two questions are number one. Do you have Internet access? Yeah. OK. And number two, assuming you might do something with physical product, does the mail service run to and from where you are? Yeah. OK. Then there is no here or there anymore. My business could be run from a space station in a crater on the South Pole of the moon right now if there was a DSL connection and they would let me live there. So what does where I am geographically located have to do with my success in 2023? And the answer is actually very little. And I wouldn't say that completely because maybe I'm successful. Maybe I'm successful because of where I live. Maybe the opportunity was where I live. So you could be wealthy because of where you live. Your lack of wealth has nothing to do with your geographic location, I think would be a more accurate way to say that. Here's a few people. I'm not going to go into deep biographies or anything, but a few people who exemplify starting with nothing or in some cases almost less than nothing and becoming dramatically successful, like billionaire level successful. Howard Schultz. That's not the guy that drew Charlie Brown. That's Charles Schultz. This guy's no relation. There's a lot of people named Schultz. It's as common in the German German population as, let's say, Smith is in America today. He's a former CEO of Starbucks. He grew up in a poor housing complex in the Canter C section of Brooklyn, New York. So this guy grew up in the projects. He ends up being a CEO of Starbucks. Larry Ellison, that sounds familiar, Oracle, software company giant Oracle. He was raised in a modest two-bedroom apartment in Chicago's South Shore. His adopted father was actually an uncle, and he was a uh, Russian immigrant. His mother gave him up for adoption. As a very young child, she was a single mother living in, in, in New York City and could not afford to take care of her own kid. You got to think, not only did this guy not have much, and when I was doing this research, I'm like, so once he was adopted, was his uncle rich or something? No, his uncle was poor as crap. But you imagine being his kid. Not only, not only did you, you grow up with nothing, your own mother, at least at some level in your head, got rid of you, discarded you. Didn't want you. Now, I don't think that's what happened. I think she probably did 
what she thought was best for her kid. But you got to understand a kid at that age is going to feel that way. That's a lot to overcome right there before you go out and build wealth. And Jan Coombe, co-founder of WhatsApp, his mother and he immigrated to the United States when he was 16 years old uh, from Ukraine. He, they struggled immensely and they, they got by on food stamps. Who is, who is he? Co-founder of WhatsApp. Was sold, it was sold for $19 billion or something like that. Like This guy's a billionaire today. Started out with absolutely nothing. So when you use, but, 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 I'm, you know, here, how about this one? But I am the son of a bootleg coal miner from rural Pennsylvania. We're so bad off that my father still lives in the house he grew up in, that his parents died and left to him, and it's ready to fall down. Yeah, we had to kill deer in deer season, not for sport, but because we actually needed meat to get by year over year. If you don't know who I am, if you're new to this show, that's me. So I ain't got a lot of sympathy. Uh, John Willis told his story at Self-Reliance Festival of how he ended up in prison, thought he had something waiting for him when he got out. And while he was in prison, everything went away. I won't get into why, but it was all gone. Joel, uh, Joel Riles from Fortress Canine. Uh, has a very similar story, almost an identical story, different circumstances, but same thing. You think you have something waiting for you when you come back, and when you come back, you got nothing. John Willis from SOE Tactical Gear, who's this shirt from, by the way, right? Um, I didn't know this about him. When he got out and everything was gone, he had already been in the business of sewing tactical gear, you know, Uh, harnesses and rigs and stuff like that. He reached out to all his old suppliers and said, I have nothing, but I got a sewing machine and I'm back. Will you send me end cuts, remnants, scraps, pieces that you were, anything that you have to help me get back on my feet so that I can become your customer again. And in a couple of years, he was back into a multimillion dollar business. Now, how hard do you have to work? Oh, he was working like multiple part-time jobs at the same time for income, including like working for a pizza joint. How, how bad do you have to want it to do that? People look at what I have today, and I was successful before this podcast, but I was miserable, so I didn't consider myself wealthy. I actually in some ways had more money than I do today, but now I have freedom and money. That's wealth to me. That's another way to define wealth. But none of, none of the people that say, oh, it must be nice to have what Jack has. Oh, it's look at how easy it is. It's, sure, it's easy for you to say that because you have everything. When I was building this show, I would get up somewhere between 3.30 and 4.30 in the morning. I would go downstairs to the office that I maintained in my house. And I would prepare my show, all the show notes, all the research, all the links, everything to go in. And then I got in my car and I drove you know, an hour to an hour and a half to work and I recorded the show. I got to the office. It was my office. I closed the door and told people, leave me alone when I get there. And among other things, I uploaded my show for the day. And none of the people that say, oh, it must be nice or anything stupid like that. None of you were in my way when I was coming down the stairs to do my prep work at four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning. None of you were there. None of you were there when I would get off work, drive home, 
And after I said hello to my wife, maybe had dinner or whatever, went and answered all the emails that came in, all the comments that came in, got the forum off the ground, all the stuff that made us successful. None of you were in my way. Now, many of you were there, my followers. I don't mean that. I mean the people bitching, right? People that were there then, you, 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 if you're still here now, you're not who I'm talking to, right? You, you already know what you're getting. And there's so much of that. When people say it must be nice, uh, Tim said he came up with a new thing. Yeah, it is. It is nice. But I earned it. But I earned it. So on this, you'll notice a common theme here. Two of these people out of the three that I gave you, Schultz, Ellison, and Coombe, were immigrants. And there's so many people that were immigrants that were successful. And this is something I've known for a long time, the story I'm about to tell you. When I, when I was in sales, I was a regional sales VP. I had a pretty big territory, but it was a territory that really didn't behoove itself to flight. Like I, I had quite a few airline miles, but I also spent a lot of ass and windshield time in my car driving around. It was just easier, more convenient. And I used to listen to a lot of audio books. And I would go to half-price books and find an audio book. And I would pretty much wear that sucker out, listen to it five, six, seven times. Then I would take it back, sell it for, you know, instead of half, a quarter, and use that money and roll it into another one. And one of the series I got along the way uh, was by Zig Ziglar. And he was talking about this exact thing. And he talked about being on an airplane one time, and he was sitting in first class, so he's up by the front door so he could see what's going on. This little girl comes in, probably six years old, little curly tail, says, looks almost like, uh, what's her name, uh, Shirley Temple, right? And uh, this is back then, so the door to the cockpit is open. You can look in the cockpit and see all the controls. And the little girl walks into the plane, and she stops right in the aisle in everybody's way. But everybody lets it go because she's a little girl. She looks in the cockpit, and this is like a big plane, like a 747 or something. You know, she looks all the way down this huge plane, sees all these people, all these controls, all of this amazingness, and realizes I'm about to get in this tube and fly in the sky. And all she says is, "Oh, gosh!" She was blown away. And most adults got on that plane, didn't even bother to turn her head and look at the controls that were going to be at the helm for the pilot who was about to take their life into their hands and fly them. So they didn't even care. It's just mundane, like getting in a cab and they sit down. Most of us that were born here in this country, we don't understand. Oh, gosh, we've been on the plane so many times. We're not amazed by the plane anymore. Nothing about the plane seems amazing to us. We don't realize we can actually be flying this plane. And when I heard that, it made me think of my own childhood of one of my, you know, young, naive, young Jack, gosh, moments. I was probably seven years old, somewhere in that range. And I was dropped off at a diner that my grandmother worked at. I used to spend the weekends with my grandmother a lot when I lived in Florida. And so what would happen is I would get dropped off there and she had maybe a half hour to an hour left to her shift. And when she got done, I would ride home with her. It just made it easier for everybody. And I didn't mind. You give a kid a piece of pie or something, let him read his comic books. He's happy. You know, he feels important. He's in the diner. He's at the bar. It's like he owns the place, you know. And uh, my grandmother one day comes to me and says, do you want a piece of pie? Said, yeah, what kind? Apple. Great. No problem. Reaches in the little spinny thing, old school diner, pulls out a piece of apple pie. I've had pie here before. I know it's cold. She says, do you want it heated up? And like any kid, I want my pie now. 
So my question is, well, how long is this going to take? She says, just a couple seconds. I think she's grandma embellishing, but I'm willing to wait. I'm reading an important comic book. I got some time here. I got my Coke. I'm good. Sure, grandma, I want to heat it up before I can turn the page in the comic book. The pie's sitting in front of me. It's steaming hot. She says, be careful. It might really be hotter in the middle than it is on the outsides. I bite into this pie. It's warm. It's delicious. I wait for my grandma to get done. She, she comes back over. How is it? Great. But how'd you do this? She goes, it's called a microwave. We just got one. This is about 1982, something, 81, maybe 1980. Gosh, it's probably 1979, actually, I would say. 79, 80, it'd be in there. I didn't know what to think. Now, today, am I amazed by a microwave? No. And the problem with that is when you're no longer amazed by the microwave, you don't realize what the microwave does for you. You live... If you're an American, you live in a place, even though there's a lot of problems, and I, God knows I point them out, with more opportunity than just about any other place in the world. And that's why when somebody comes here from, whether it's an advanced country like Japan, or really, you know, like a backwater like Ethiopia or something, or, or, or you know, some other place, that they come here, and not all of them, but so many of them, become incredibly wealthy. They, just the very fact, I can buy a piece of property? Yeah. I can buy a piece of property and charge somebody else to live in it? Yeah. So they pay for my property? Yes. So how much money do I need? Well, you need like 5% of the value of the property saved up. Where do I get the other 95%? Oh, if you go there with the money to a bank, they'll give you the money. And then you can pay the, the, the debt with your tenant's money. And keep whatever's left over. And the value of the property grows. You get to keep that too. And then you get to write all of this extra stuff off in your taxes and pay less taxes. Gosh. Really? No. What's the catch? You have to go do the work. Well, that person's like, you know what? Yesterday, I was scrubbing the ass of a cow with a Brillo pad. So I'm kind of okay with doing the work that I need to get there. And so what I want you to do is look for the oh goshes around you that you're missing. What is it that's sitting right in front of you that you could be doing something with, but the fact that you want to stay in the comfort zone is keeping you from pursuing it? And on this same note, you might need to become a domestic immigrant. It's the only word I, word I can say for it. It might be emigrant. The difference between an immigrant and an emigrant is an immigrant goes somewhere to live there, and a person that's an immigrant with an E goes there to live there permanently, right? It's a, it's a committed move, 100%, right? Um, you may need to move within your own country. You may need to move to the other side of town. You might need to move to the other side of the country or anywhere in between. And I'll explain that with, I said there is no there anymore, but there is a there in your head, and you are surrounded by other people that can drag you down and make you feel like it's okay to be comfortable with mediocrity. When I lived in rural Pennsylvania in the 1980s, it was the epitome of being from there, a place you don't understand how hard it is. It was There was not much opportunity on the surface. I made jokes a lot of times when people ask me about high school, and what I say is, you know how... 
in a lot of schools, you got the rich kids and the poor kids and they have their own cliques and they really don't mix. We had a few rich kids. I can tell you the Quandles were pretty wealthy. They, they ran a concrete factory. The Yinglings were pretty wealthy. They were, you know, Yingling Brewery. And there was a couple other, you know, entrepreneurial large businesses. But there was about six kids in my entire high school across all four grades that came from wealthy families. So the wealthy kids did hang out with the poor kids because if they didn't, they wouldn't have any friends. There weren't enough wealthy or even upper middle class to segregate off. That's how rare it was for anybody, even entrepreneurs, to be wealthy in this place. The people that had the best jobs didn't stay there, even if they lived there. What I mean is they were like over-the-road truck drivers, right? Or there were people that literally would drive to Philadelphia and live in Philadelphia for the week and come home every weekend. And that's how they were able to make more money. So it would be like a dad that left his family weekly. Instead of being on the road, just live somewhere else. Maybe maybe he partnered up with two or three other guys and were roommates down in Philly because there was more opportunity in Philly. Those were guys that wanted it, but they still weren't wealthy. And that's the best of it. That's the best of it. You walked around those mountains. The reason I talk about picking scrap copper up, the reason I was able to pick up scrap copper and all these old mining shacks and stuff was abandoned in the 1930s, 50 years before I was a kid there. They just walked away and left it. There were buildings everywhere that had trees growing through them. And when we later in my life, I took a job in the northeast United States for Fluke Networks. We lived in Allentown. And there's a like a the Allentown ABE, Allentown Bethlehem East. And this was like Steel Central. Back in the heyday, the 50s and 60s, it was a good place to live. It's what Billy Joel's song, Allentown, is all about. And we moved there, and it was the same thing. All these old steel mills and and facilities, just trees growing through the roof. This place was rough. This place was rough. But what it did is it, it damaged the mindset of the people that lived there to accept mediocrity, to think If I can get a job making $10 an hour that it's hard to get fired from, that's not that hard, I've made it. Not that's a good – like there's nothing wrong with that job, especially in today's money, right? Today's money, that's what, $20, $25 an hour. But this guy, my friend's dad, he was in his 50s, and he had accepted that's it. And he had been at that level for like 15 years, and he was done. So he hit – his pinnacle at 35 and his pinnacle was as average and mediocre as possible. And when I went back in the early 2000s, when I took that job for fluke, I found not only had nothing had changed, it had gotten worse. It had declined. Here I am. I'm like early thirties, late twenties, something like that. I don't even want to look at it. it. Sucks to get old. Right. And I'm looking for a house. I'm doing my new job. And I'm living at my dad's because I haven't found a house yet. I'm living at my dad's for like a week at a time, and I'm flying back and forth to, to Dallas-Fort Worth to, 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 to see my family. And once we find a house, then the school year is going to end, and we're all going to move together, you know. And this one morning, I stay at my dad's. It's a Saturday. I don't have to work. And I think, you know what, I'm going to go fishing in this old creek I used to fish in. And what I used to do when I went fishing in this creek 
is I would stop at Mr. Donut. I know it's not good for me, but this is a long time ago. And if you look at old pictures of me, I ate a lot of donuts. So I stop at Mr. Donut. I'm sitting at Mr. Donut. It's like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm sitting there with my donuts. Yes, donuts, plural, cup of coffee. And I'm reading a book. And I'm a multitasker. I can read and listen. So I'm not intentionally, but I am listening to all the conversations around me. There was one word that I heard more than any other word come out of and These are grown men, grown women, and not all old. It's not like there's a bunch of retired people. There's a ton of people in there. You should be working somewhere. They're not. Middle-aged people sitting in a donut shop on a Saturday afternoon, and a word that they're using over and over and over and over and over, cheaper. Oh, they have it cheaper down there. Oh, they're really proud of their prices. Go here. It's cheaper. Oh, that's too dear a cost that they want for that. It's cheaper over here. Cheaper, cheaper, cheaper. And I finally, like, ate the last piece of the one donut, grabbed the other donut, put it on top of my coffee cup, put my book under my arm, got in my, my car, and hauled ass down to this creek to go fishing, and I felt like I needed to go home and take a shower first. Like, I had this poor mindset scum attached to my body. I couldn't get it off. I know it sounds a little melodramatic, but I'm telling you guys, this was – you know, 20, 30 minutes of hearing the word cheaper two or three times a minute from different people. The whole place was jammed with people talking about what was cheaper. I talked to my dad about this later. He said, you can't put these people down. You don't know what it's like here. Must my dad telling me, I don't know what it's like in a place I grew up with him. Okay, see, same shit, same shit. And he described the place, and some people will get triggered by this, too bad. White man's ghetto. He said, this is this place, this whole county, this whole area is a white man's ghetto. You really understand that you need to know something about my dad. My dad was a student of history. When he used the word ghetto, he wasn't really using it in the vernacular of like a, where a bunch of black people live in, in, in the south side of Chicago. He was talking about the traditional ghettos in Europe, the ones that were put in by the Nazis and designed to be open-air prisons for the Jews. And in some instances, it was a perfect analogy because some of those that were designed to be open-air prisons, the people in there actually could have left any time they want, but they couldn't see that they could leave, and that's what this place was. There's nothing that makes a person stay in Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania, other than their mind. But they wouldn't leave. And they wouldn't not just leave geographically, they wouldn't leave mentally. And you may have to move. You may have to move at least far enough away that the people that know you and that you know can't talk to you on a daily basis. Again, it might be across town. Because if you have people around you convincing you that living with mediocrity is okay, and boy, will they effing do it. Because I'm going to save it, but it's the crab in the cooler. Pulls the other crab back in. They will do it. You have to get away from those freaking people. But I'm going to tell you something. That place I just described. So you can't use that. Well, that's where I'm at, Jack, and I can't leave. So I'm going to make an excuse. I believed that a person that's in the exact position I was in when I was 17 and joined the Army to get the hell out of there could move there and blow it up and succeed like no get out. You can buy a house for next to nothing. Right? It's a cheap place to live. There's tons of shitty little part-time jobs because nobody wants to work. So you can get little bits of money here and there until you figure out what you're going to do. You have an Internet connection. They have high-speed Internet there. I've seen it. There's a post office. There's a FedEx store. 
You can ship shit. You can receive shit. You can accept money. You can blow it up there. The difference is even though you're in a place with poverty mindset, you don't know the people with the poverty mindset. They don't know you, and they don't feel comfortable telling you that it's okay to suck. And when you go there with the right mindset, you'll find out there's a lot more wealthy people there than you think. We didn't know. I said there was only a few wealthy kids in the school. That's who we knew. That's who it was obvious for. But there's plenty of money anywhere in this country. Anywhere you go, there's wealthy people. Those are the people you need to make part of your, you know, your mastermind group. Um, it's not really about where you go. It's only that you leave. It's only that you leave. That's what actually changes things. You picking up and moving. You know, there's people that move out to Camden, Tennessee to go work for John Willis. Sometimes they stay a long time. Sometimes they don't. But they end up improving their life. Do you think Camden, Tennessee is a mecca of opportunity? In some ways it is, but it's not like it's not like going to Dallas or Fort Worth or Jacksonville, Florida or Tampa, Florida, where there's so much opportunity. You could see it everywhere. Again, every place is a mecca of opportunity. But Camden, Tennessee would be a place that a lot of people from Camden would say, you don't know what it's like to be from here. But the person that moves from California, maybe L.A., where there's lots of opportunity, but couldn't see it because they were surrounded by negative, and moves there and gets into an entity like SOE with a guy like John Willis up your ass every day that gets up at 4.30 in the morning, makes a video, and tells you sleep faster if you don't think you have enough time, right? All of a sudden, they're on fire. Now, not all of them. You have to actually do the work. Moving alone won't do it. But you may have to move, and this is a very uncomfortable thing. But isn't it right back? Isn't it right back to that comfort zone? Isn't that really what we're going right back to? When we look at this, I'm going to pull this up again, this diagram. Isn't that exactly what we're talking about when we say that right here? This comfort zone map? Staying in that little circle in the center? And every time you think about leaving it, you lack confidence, you make excuses, you listen to the opinions of others. And that's something else that I, I had a lot of this week. Everybody wants to come up to you when you're somebody that's known as successful and say, I have an idea. What do you think? And I'll always entertain the idea. I'll always say, I'm going to listen to your idea, but I always profess it with this. Number one, if I think your idea is fucking stupid, I'm going to tell you it's fucking stupid. Okay, uh, if I think it's going to fail, I tell you this thing is going to fail. And I don't want to, but you're asking me. So understand that I'm going to do that. Number two, if you believe in it, even if I tell you that, you should probably try to do it anyway, because it's very possible that I'm wrong. What the hell do I know about your business? The reason you're interested in doing this thing is because you know something about it. Maybe I don't know nothing about it. Right. And, and to drive that home, do you know what I thought was stupid? Power Rangers. I thought Power Rangers was the dumbest idea, even for kids, I'd ever seen in my life. Right? When I saw Power Rangers the first time, I said, what kind of moron created this? Who the hell thinks this is going to work? A few years later, I'm standing in line for two hours with a kid waiting for him to be able to talk to a dude dressed up in a Power Ranger suit. 
So I could be wrong, right? You have to go for it, regardless of what somebody else thinks about it. Somebody's opinion, even a smart person's opinion, should never be an excuse for you not to act. It also can't be an impetus for you to act. Because my other qualifier, when somebody says they want to tell me a business before I'll listen and give you my opinion, is I can tell you I think it's a genius idea. And I can tell you that everything you told me about the way you want to approach it is right. And it could still fall on its ass because I could also be wrong. Because whatever it's going to take to adapt, improvise, and overcome in the pursuit of this thing, I'm not going to be there for you. I'm doing that in my own business. So your ability to do that can take something I think will fail and make it a success. And your inability to do that can take a home run concept and destroy it. I don't know. Now, do you still want my opinion? Amazingly, people still want your opinion when you say that. I think honesty uh, goes a long way toward making people want to hear what you have to say, even if they don't like the way that it sounds. So I've got 10 primary keys for your success, and I'm going to run them pretty quick here so we don't make this uh, episode take too long. You can probably hear a little strain in my voice when I'm gone at an event for that many days in a row. It tends to strain the voice. Uh, number one, mindset and abandoning the negative. That's the first, that's the most important thing I want you to get to. The way you think and basically taking anything that's negative and destroying it in your mind immediately is the number one thing you can do to be successful. Now, I have to classify, clarify something with this negative thing. There's two kinds of negative. There's just straight up self doubt. Maybe they won't really like me. You know, I'll tell you the number one reason that people get nervous when they start publicly speaking is maybe they won't listen to me. Maybe they won't like me. Don't think that because you'll screw yourself up. You'll end up there going, um, ah, uh, and like fumbling and like not really putting inflection in your All of that is all about fear that the people won't like you. If they weren't willing to give you a, a, a fair shake, they wouldn't be sitting their ass in front of you listening to you. You're in front of friendlies when you do public speaking. Relax, right? But that mindset is important. Now, the negative, though, you have to be careful that throwing away the negative doesn't mean ignoring actual problems. So you need to look at the negative thought for just a second and say, is this actually a thing? Is this actually an issue? Is this what I'm concerned about of the quality of the product that I'm building is not there yet? Now, it will never be perfect before you go to market, so I'm not talking about that. But if it's got a legitimate flaw, then you put that into corrective action, not negative thoughts. If it doesn't fit into something you could do something about, you abandon it. You destroy it. If you have to crystallize an image of whatever represents it in your mind and watch it in your mind explode into oblivion. And do that as many times as you have to until it's dead. Until you don't, every time you see it, again, every time it comes back, every time you feel it creeping into your life, visualize some image, even if it's the image of the words in front of you, and see it like a nuclear bomb, like worse than a nuclear bomb, like a pulsar turning into a black hole, <laughs> destroying an entire solar system. See it that way until it's gone. Because if you don't change your mindset, you aren't going anywhere. And this is why I said you might have to move. And if you don't move, if you have people that do this to you in your life, and I don't mean do it to you maliciously, do it to you because they can't help themselves. You have to see them. You're in a cooler. Jack Spear goes cooler. When I was a kid, we used to go crab fishing all the time. Chicken necks, over the dock, net, puts you in a cooler, right? And you know what happens once you're in a cooler now? You're going to be in a heater soon. 
That cooler's going in the back of the truck. Truck's going home. Pot's getting fired up. Steam, you're going to be red and in butter and garlic, and I'm going to eat you. Yeah? You need to get your ass out of that cooler. You need to understand all the crabs around you that aren't trying to get out of that, that cooler every time I open the lid and put another one in or your enemy. You need to get away because I, I've seen it happen. That one crab starts going up the side. Crab that's in the cooler reaches up and grabs his crab ass and pulls him back in. Thanks, buddy. You're both going to the boiling pot. And you have to understand that the people around you are those crabs in that cooler. They're just like you. They don't hate you. But they don't want to see you leave. If they're not leaving, you're not leaving either. You've got to banish that shit. Next, massive action with a burning desire. If you have time to binge something on Netflix, you're not using massive action and a burning desire. You're not. I'm sorry. If you have time for video games, you're not doing massive action and a burning desire. If you have time to argue with your buddy, about who the best quarterback is. No massive action and burning desire unless you guys are building a podcast about sports. Then I'll give you a pass. If you can monetize what you're doing, it's okay. You can't monetize that shit, you don't have time for it. But, Jack, what about recreation, blah, blah, blah. Every once in a while you take a break here and there, sure. Maybe you take a day a week off. I don't know if you're at that point where you're ready to do that yet. And there's a point where you've really made it and you've built leisure into your life, and you have that buffer, and you're comfortable for real, not by artificial stimulation or mental masturbation, you're actually really comfortable, and your life is kind of set. You want to pull back a little bit at that point, play some video games, binge some Netflix, go right on ahead. But don't come to me and bitch about you not having what you want. Don't be looking at the guy driving the nice car going, it must be nice, right? Don't be the person saying, you don't know what it's like, and you're playing fucking video games and watching Netflix. Bullshit. Bullshit. If you don't know what to do in your business, go take a walk. Go run. Lift weights. Do something physical. Get out of the bullshit in your head. Become a better you. Learn a skill, even if it's not directly applicable to what you're trying to build, if you don't have anything to be doing with that right now. But you probably do have something you could be doing that right now. Massive action and burning desire. This is why I say follow your passion. If you can't tell, I love teaching people more than I love doing anything else in the world. A lot of people, if you ask, what does Jack love most? Permaculture, fishing, hunting, bullshit, teaching. I'm the guy. I know what I love most, teaching. What I'm doing right now, I love this more than doing any other activity other than being a father, a grandfather, and a husband. Those are the only things that I love more than teaching people. Passionate. That's why I got the fuck out of bed at 4.30 in the morning when I was building this thing from nothing. And I was working 60 hours a week with my normal corporate job. And I made a lot of money. And I didn't need it. But I I needed it in here. If you're going to build something, be passionate about it. If you can't figure out what to be passionate about, be passionate about building wealth and making money. That's why You can be scrubbing shit out of pipes. But if you figure out a way to make a shitload of money scrubbing shit... Be passionate about the money until you figure something else out. But follow passion, burning desire. Next, if you don't know what you want to do, do what will make things better until you figure it out. That's what I said. If you if you move to my old hometown of Possible, Pennsylvania, you'll hear there's no work, there's no jobs, there's no nothing. You'll see hiring, 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 hiring. 
Oh, but it all pays shit. But it pays something. Take the one that pays the most. Work your ass off. Meet some people. Ask every person you interact with. Hey, I only work part time here. Do you know of any other opportunities? The more people you talk to, the more people you connect with, the more opportunities you find. If you're working a job that sucks, but it pays decent, and you can go across the street and make $5 an hour more, go do it. If you've worked the job to the point where I'm not ready to completely go out on my own yet, and I make pretty, pretty good money, but you're done learning. Nothing like you're my friend's dad from high school. There's not a thing you're going to do today that's going to make you any better than you were yesterday. You're done. You've plateaued in what you can learn. Get out of that fucking job. Go find something that pays the same or more that will teach you something more. I took at one time in my life a $100,000 plus pay cut to move from being primarily in sales to primarily in marketing so that I could be for a year surrounded by people that did marketing 24 hours a day. So that I could find myself amongst people who were smarter than me about something. And I had taught myself so much. I knew more than any of those people. I ended up cheap, low-end pay, running the team. Running the team. It was a bunch of college interns, basically. That's where I ended up, making 45 grand a year, coming off a salary close to 200. That's a comfortable conversation to have with your wife, let me tell you. Well, this job's over. I could get another one just like it, but I want to go do this shit for 45 grand a year. Uh, and you know, she said, okay. You can find a great wife, a great husband, whatever. That just makes this all a lot more easy, right? But do something to improve your position. Don't just sit there and wait for because nothing's coming to you. You have to be aggressive. You have to be looking at all the times. You have to be opportunistic, right? That doesn't mean you're a bad person, a conniving person, an evil person. But you have to be like, okay, I've worked my ass off at this job for two years. You go ask for a raise, they give you a 10% raise. That's nice. Does it really do anything for you, though? Does it? Does it matter? Especially if you get a raise, but you don't get a promotion or you get a promotion and it doesn't mean you got any new responsibilities, you get a title. Whenever I found myself in a job where there was nothing for me to learn, I went somewhere else. Do that. Get in physical health. Improve your physical health. I don't mean to sound unkind, but whenever I go to workshops or whatever, you know, in our community, 40 percent, 30 to 40 percent of people are not just overweight, they're obese. I mean, obese. And I don't again, I'm not being unkind, but you have nobody to blame but yourself. The only hand that puts food in your hole is you. And there's other ways that you maybe you're not obese and you're really physically not in shape as well. It does. You don't have to do what John Willis does. I don't. You don't have to be pounding iron every day or. Go do something and eat less food. Get on a good diet. Now, I recommend carnivore or keto, something in that vein, paleo primal, something in that world. But I don't care if you decide to do it some other way. You need to maximize your health. You can't get out of bed for five years of building because you don't have to do it forever. But you can't do that for five years of building something when you're out of shape. And I did. 
I was out of shape. I still did it. I had that much desire. But how much better would it have been if I had been in shape back then? Improve your physical physical health. And I, I, you know, if when I came on the scene, I was the picture of physical health, and I wasn't, I actually think I'd have less credibility than doing it today. Because, again, when you say, but you don't know what it's like, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. I was 300 pounds. I got the pictures to prove it. I got the pictures. You just, all you got to do is go to go to Google, type in Jack Spirico, and switch to images and start scrolling. You'll find them. You'll go, what? That's him? Why do you think I didn't do video in 2010? Right? Why do you think there were a lot of, there weren't a lot of pictures of me out there? I knew. I wasn't happy about it. And even though I was massively successful when I was a massive dude, it's so much better now. And all I can, and you might think, well, you know, it's great. You, you're, you're helping. You, you know what? I, I recently was asked by John Willis on one of our live streams, what would you go tell your young self, right, in the past? If you got to speak to yourself when you were 25, what would you tell yourself? And I said nothing because I wouldn't want to risk losing anything I had. If I could think about it now, it would just be stay in good physical condition. Keep working out. Keep eating right. Pay attention to scale. If you start gaining weight, do something about it. That probably wouldn't have derailed the rest of my life with a butterfly effect, you know. Next, do the things that move you in the right direction. Everything that you spend time doing, you need to be asking yourself. And again, I'm really talking about you don't have what you want in life yet, right? You're still in a building state. If you're in a building state in your life and you're spending time doing something, you should say to yourself, self, how does this get me closer to where I want to go? And by the way, since we've defined wealth at the very beginning, you know where that is. And whether you want to admit it or not, it's decidingly easy to answer that question with a yes or a no without a but. Butts are asses. Don't use them. Okay? Butts are asses. Don't use them. Is this thing moving me in the right direction? And if it's not, again, I am not a complete party pooper. Right? I probably spent too much time partying in my 20s. I honestly did. I'll be just clear about that. You can be moving in the right direction. If your progress is really ongoing, you have a little bit more leeway in that world. If you are not progressing, you have no time. Spend your time doing the things that move you in the right direction. Seriously, limit your time wasting shit. Surround yourself with people who are on this journey to at various levels. If you're like, let's say, 25% to where you're going, you want some people in your life that are at 1%, but they're committed. They're committed. You know what that is? That's when you're running and you end up making the, the laps faster because somebody's trying to catch you and you're like, oh, that, that some bitch is catching up on me. That's a real thing. Best I ever did when I took a PT test in the Army on my run, I always was able to max the push-ups and the sit-ups. Back then, the PT test was three events, push-ups, sit-ups, and run. And I think you had to do to max it. You had to do 92 sit-ups, 82 push-ups, both of those in two minutes, and we had a two-mile run. And to max the run was like 11 minutes and 58 seconds. I was never even thinking about maxing the run. I am slow. I'm a Ukrainian with giant legs, and I'm short and stocky. I am slow. You know, I have, a, I have the, the waist-to-neck measurements of a six-foot, two-inch guy and I'm five foot, 10 inches tall. All right. Just to kind of make my point, like short, stocky legs. And 
most of the time I would complete that run somewhere around 14 minutes, 14 minutes. And I wanted, always wanted to try to get the one night, or was it 190 or two, 290 score, 290 points. You got your master fitness patch. I ended up getting it. And the way I got it, I wasn't even thinking about it. There was a guy behind me on that run on that particular PT test. Big black dude. Big dude. Long legs. And in about the last half mile of that run, I was just having a good run for me to begin with. I could hear thump, 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 thump. These giant probably size 14 freaking shoes behind me. And I start speeding up and he realizes it. And he starts saying, he's goading me. He knows it was an NCO, good one. He knew what he was doing. I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. I'm going to catch you. I'm going to pass you. He never did. He never did. I crossed that line 12 minutes, 13 seconds in a two-mile run. That's like me doing back-to-back four-minute miles. Like, that is that is insane for me. And he, he came across like two strides behind me, and he, he was doubled over breathing hard. He said, I tried. I tried. But I'm an old man. That means like 34 in the Army, right? I'm an old man. You're lucky. In my day, you would have never got away. And I was so grateful that it wasn't his day. Because once he passed me, it would have been over. I needed somebody to stay ahead of. So you want people that are preceding you in the journey. And you want people to chase that are ahead of you in the journey. And you want people at the end, at the finish line, that are already done going, come on. Come on. And you know what you don't have fucking time for when you're trying to build that in your life? All those other bastards that tell you it's okay. Don't worry about it. They don't know what it's like here. It must be nice. If you have somebody in your life that when they see somebody with a nice car, nice girl, nice house, nice anything, this is it must be nice. That person, you could talk to them on Thanksgiving and Christmas. Seriously. At least until you're strong enough to deal with their bullshit. Right? If, you, if you're like an alcoholic and you need to quit drinking, you have to stop hanging out with people to drink. Maybe two years into it, you can walk into a bar, drink water. You can't do that on day two. You're addicted to these people. You have to get rid of them. You have to cull them like freaking sheep from the herd. They have to go. They don't have to be hung up and slaughtered. But you cannot continue to live with them. You've got to get them out of your life because you don't have, you only have room for so many people in your life. I know that sounds elitist or kind of like being an asshole. But how many people do you know on a first-name basis? Most people know less than 200 people on a first-name basis. And most people hang out with less than a dozen people. Why? Because we have limited time. We have limited space. We have limited lifetimes. And we have limited people that we can tolerate, and we have limited people that can tolerate us. That means it's an inherently limited number of people you associate with. And that number better not be zero either, because then you get in your own head, you believe your own bullshit, and you end up crazy and old and senile and alone. But you don't have room for crabs to pull you back in the box. You need to get the hell out of the box and run like hell before the fisherman gets the net around you and throws your ass back in there and steams your ass. Really, surround yourself with people on a journey to at various levels. Next. Do not dream too small. Dare to shoot for the stars. If you only get to the moon, that'll be great. If your goal is not frightening to you, get a bigger goal. Get a bigger goal. When I hear somebody tell me something like, one day I'm going to be a billionaire, if they're actually doing shit, not just saying it, I'm like, okay. I'm not about to tell them no. I'm not about to tell them no. 
I know fair, fairly well they probably won't. But I know if they're shooting to be a billionaire and they're actually trying and they're really working and they're doing the kind of shit we're talking about today, they're going to be a multimillionaire. I know, I, I, I know that. It's the old thing. You put the hurdle up too high for the guy to jump. And you try to make them jump. And they keep running. They keep running. They keep tipping over, tipping over, tipping over. You lower it just a little bit to a height they've never cleared before. They go right over it. They go right over it. You cannot set your goal too low because you'll never achieve what you can really achieve. You should be terrified of your goal. And you should state it matter-of-factly anyway. This is a true story. When I first started Survival Podcast, I didn't even tell my wife I was doing it for several months because it was just kind of a hobby in my car. Real quick, I figured out I was going to make it a success. So I finally tell my wife about it, show her it. She said, oh, this is cool. Are you, are, well, what are you going to do with it? I said, well, I'm going to start monetizing it in a few months. She goes, do you know how? I'm like, yeah, I know how. She goes, could you do it now? I'm like, yeah, but it's not ready yet. I said, that doesn't sound like you. You got to trust me. Okay. This is the wonderful wife that I have, you know. But she said, well, where do you think this is going? And I said, well, for instance, I'll be on the Glenn Beck show. She goes, what? I said, I'll be on Glenn, because Glenn Beck was kind of big in this space at the time. And she said, you think so? I said, yeah. She goes, how are you going to get there? I said, I don't know. I don't even care. doesn't even matter. About a year and a half later, phone rings, Glenn Beck show. We want to have you on the show. You might not think that that belief is attached to that result. But if you don't think there are even on some subconscious level things I was doing moving me in that direction just because I had that as a thought, then you don't understand how the human mind works. Absolutely don't think too small. Be a lifetime learner. Crave and seek knowledge, but never let it replace action. If you listen to me, that's great. But if you don't apply what I'm telling you, it's wasted. Why do you think I don't want to be a consultant? If I do this and I make it scalable and all of you can hear me, it's your choice. And I don't have an emotional connection to whether you do what I'm telling you to do or not. I don't care. When I used to do marketing consulting for people, business consulting for people, I took my clients in like they were family. Good family. Yeah. Gave them 100% of my heart. I believed in them and their business more than they did. And that was the problem. Because then when they didn't take action, I was miserable. If you become a lifelong learner and you apply the knowledge, you're unstoppable because you'll never quit growing. Whenever you get to a point like I really know everything about this one thing that I need to know, you'll go find another thing to learn. And you'll find out something. The more you learn about incredibly diverse topics, the more you can use what you know to figure out what's most likely in the things that you don't know. We refer to that as logic. In the trivium of learning, Logic, log, uh, grammar, logic, and rhetoric, right? Grammar, logic, and rhetoric are the trivium. Logic is the ability to take the things that you know and use everything about what you know, look at a thing you don't know, see the things that are attached, and extrapolate the most logical answer going forward. That is the textbook definition of how to be successful in business. You will always have to do things that you're not sure about in business, but the more diverse your knowledge base the more you're going to be accurate in making the determination about what course to set. So absolutely become a lifelong learner. Codify your personal moral code. What do I mean by codify it? You should be able to sit down and, and list like 10 things, like your own personal 10 commandments, 
Some of them might even be out of the Ten Commandments, not like not lying and not committing murder, right? But there sh- you should be able to completely and clearly define what is your what is your gauge for integrity. I've always said my goal for this show is it's one word brand to be integrity. That you might hate me, you might think I'm an idiot, you might think I'm wrong, but you do not ever ever think I'm misleading you or lying to you or I'm shilling something just to make money. Like integrity is my core brand. You need that too. And then you need to not be afraid to be clear about it and public about it. If you have a company, put your core values on your website, read them every day. I would, if I had employees, which I don't want anymore. I did this when I had employees. Here's their core values. Memorize them. Week later, what's core value three? You don't know? If you don't know, the next time I ask you, you are fucking fired. Because you can't work here and exemplify the core values of this place if you don't know what they are. When I was in the Army, we had three general orders. General order number one, I will guard everything within the limits of my post and quit my post only when properly relieved. I don't think I've had to say that to anyone who asked me about it since 1992. But I remember it because it was important and because I was held accountable to remember it. All right. Your core values for your brand, you should commit to memory the same way a soldier commits their general orders to memory, to real memory, not fake memory, not where you well, like it, just like I did there. Yeah. General order number two, I will guard everything within the limits of my post and perform all my duties in a military manner. Yeah, like you should be able to throw that out there. Number four, Andy, I'm not a Marine. We had three. I think the Marines had more. All right. I will report violations of my special orders, emergencies, and anything not covered in my instructions to the commander of the relief. General order number three. You should know your core values. I'm not saying that to impress you. I'm making a point. You take, like, this stolen valor shit. Yeah. What's your first general order? They don't know that. You already know what you're dealing with. I'm telling you. Not that I care that much about people that are so sad they wear military uniforms to pretend they're soldiers. I don't really care about that. I don't get in a, in a, in a wad about that. Um, but codify that personal moral, moral code. Be clear about it. If you're running a company with employees, codify the moral code of the company and make every I don't care. The person that pushes a broom in your warehouse better know the core values of your company by their second week or you need a new broom pusher. And the good news about broom pushers, there's lots of them out there. <laughs> Andy says, Army, fourth general order is um, – I will walk my post from flank to flank and take no crap from any rank. There's some, there's some truth in that. I won't go in that today. Though. Um, I, I do remember a very angry Sergeant Major one time because a private wouldn't let him through a gate. That was pretty funny. Uh, but he followed, his, he followed his orders, right? He followed his orders. Uh, the next is perform mental resets at times. For all this shit that I've said about, like, you know, you don't have time for Netflix or whatever. You know, take a vacation. Take a staycation. Take a walk in the woods. You are a battery. Batteries need maintenance and recharging, right? Your entire system, is it runs like a battery. You eat food, you get energy, you store some extra in fat, don't do too much of that, and then you burn it. 
And then you have to resupply. Your mind works that way, too. You do need a break here and there. Part of why I did Self-Reliance Festival, one, because Nicole's awesome and she asked me to. But another reason is I could feel that I was getting up to needing a break all the way back when I committed to it several months ago. By last week, I was like, man, I need this. And my buddy, Dave, that went with me, he's the same thing. I need I need this time away. But we're both actually successful, too. We have time to take these things. And we probably don't take enough. We probably don't take enough. But see, the problem is most people spend their recharge time making their life more stressful. You know, you get married, you have a couple kids, take your kids to a place that you went to as a kid and you had a great time. And you forget that when you were a kid, the reason you had a great time is your parents sat their ass on the beach or in front of the pool or whatever and let you do whatever you want. And you try to force all the experiences that you discovered for yourself on your kids instead of letting them discover them for themselves. And when you come home for your vacation, you just spent thousands of dollars that you didn't have to spend taking time off from building your life that you didn't have time to take. And you come home and you say something like what? I need a vacation from my vacation. You're doing it wrong. Recharging should feel refreshed at the end. Now, if you get off a plane or out of a long car ride and you need a nap, that's different. I'll talk about the next day when you wake up, you must should be like, bam, let's go. If you can't tell, that's how I am right now from that little long weekend. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to kick ass for the rest of the week. Here's the hard truth. You have no reasons for any lack of success in your life up to this point. It does not meet your expectations of where you're supposed to be in life. You have no reasons. All you have are excuses. There is no reason. A reason, like if you ask me, well, why is the ground dry? It didn't rain. Yeah, that's a reason. Why did the garden die? It didn't rain is an excuse. You didn't turn on the fucking irrigation. There was something you could have done that you didn't do. That's an excuse. That's a difference between an excuse and a reason. A reason is there was literally nothing you could do. 90% of what people convince themselves are reasons are actually excuses. Excuses are like assholes. Everybody's got one and they all stink. That's the truth. That's a hard truth. And it's a hard truth because it requires you to look in the mirror and say, hey, asshole, this is all your fault. It's tough. It's very hard. But you can't fix your shit until you do that. You can't. It's impossible. Because you'll keep doing it until you accept it. You have to hit, you know, like, like an addict rock bottom. Rock bottom. Some point where you just go, it's all my fault. And therefore, the solution is all on me. It's the only way you can do it. It's the only way. And re, real mentors, that's where you'll find real mentors, not people that charge you to mentor you. And they'll do it, too, most of them anyway. They're always just going to say, JFDI. Anybody want to take a shot at what JFDI means? Real mentors are always going to default to JFDI. Just fucking do it. JFDI. Do you want to pay somebody to tell you? I have people ask me probably a couple times a month if I'll be their mentor. Hey, 3,000 plus episodes. I've given from my heart and soul everything that I have to give. Go to the Survival Podcast. Find an episode on lifestyle design. Click the tag. There's a 100 
maybe a thousand, who knows, episodes, a couple hundred anyway, on lifestyle design. Start listening to them. Put in entrepreneurships. Put in business. Listen to what I already said. Do you think I'm going to tell you something different? Do you think I'm hiding something? Do you think I'm like, you know what? I'm going to tell them 80% of what they need, keep 20% behind the scenes, and I'm going to charge people $5,000 a month to give them the 20%. I can't do that. I can't do that because there's nothing that I love to do more than teach. And if you're going to teach, then you have to let go. You don't secret away knowledge as a teacher, not as a good one. And no passionate teacher is capable of it. No teacher that has a massive passion for his students to learn will hold anything back ever. That's why there's no mentoring program at TSP. It doesn't exist, especially for business. But real mentors are going to tell you to do it. But here's why mentorship fails. It's just you tricking yourself into acting. Nobody that makes money doing this is going to tell you this. See, that's why I can't do that. Then I wouldn't be able to tell you this because you wouldn't pay for it. And if you did, you'd be too dim to take on as a student, right? Or an intern or whatever. Like, I wouldn't want somebody who would pay me after what I'm about to say. No one could tell you exactly what you should do because nobody is you. What, what are you going to say? So go out and get a Plantronics headset and an MP3 recorder and a Volkswagen Jetta. Get in your car every day and do a podcast. Call it this, What am I tell you to do what I did exactly? It won't work for you. You're not me. doesn't mean I'm better than you. You might be infinitely better than me. The reason I know I'm a good teacher, because there's at least a thousand people in this audience that over 15 years started out with less than I had, ran behind me, said, I'm going to catch you. I'm going to catch you. I'm going to catch you. I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. I'm going to beat you. And they went across the finish line before me and passed me out. If you're a teacher and you don't have that, you suck. You are a shitty teacher. Why do you think our school system sucks? If your kid doesn't come out of school smarter than the teachers they had, the teachers sucked and the system sucked. Teachers are so tuned in to finding the excellence within the individual that they're teaching that if they give what they have, that student in some walk in life should exceed their ability. Even if it's an English teacher and that English teacher, thank you, Miss Siberling, Right. So inspires that student that even though they're a terrible speller. Right. And if it wasn't for chat GPT, proofreading their shit would have tons of technical errors. Go back. Go back to two years ago and look on the site and see how many errors there are in my writing. But you still are held in their mind. And some of the things and life experiences they gave you inspire you to do other things. That's teaching. That's mentorship. And I don't think it's something that can be sold. And thanks to the Internet. You can scale mentorship and earn a living doing it without actually directly selling it. Because believe it or not, everybody's hungry for knowledge. Why the hell do you think people listen to this show or hundreds of other ones, thousands of other ones? Why do you think there's a business selling books that aren't fanciful stories, right? There's all the novels and shit like that. And I, I read a lot of that, honestly. It's a great way for me to shut this brain down before I go to bed so I don't lay in bed thinking about the next day's work. There is a place to shut it off. So, like, I'm actually reading a book series right now called Mars Colony One, complete sci-fi fiction, right? And that's fine. But I'm not reading it to learn. I'm reading it for entertainment, and I'm really reading it because five minutes of that, when I lay down in bed, 
shuts me off so I can actually go to sleep that I needed to do. But think of how many books that are out there that people buy that are how to, how to garden, how to build something, history books that tell you what happened, that are actually learning, right? People crave knowledge. We have, we operate under this illusion. The reason it's so hard to be a teacher is that the kids just don't want to learn. No, they don't want to learn your bullshit. There's no one size fits all. It doesn't exist. And so real mentors and real teachers, they teach what they know and they attract the students that want what they have. But in the end, I can't fix it for you. I can't tell you what to do. I've had some good mentors in my life. And I always remember, especially when I was really young, like in my 20s, why won't you just tell me exactly what to do? Because unlike everybody else, I'll fucking do it. I'll do it. If I have to go scrape bubble gum, there's a way to scrape bubble gum off of desks in schools. And if I have to weasel my way in and convince the school to let me do it, and it will make me successful, I actually believe it. I'll do that shit. Why won't you tell me what to do? And one way or another, what the answer always was, because I can't. But whatever it is you need to do, you should go do that. Don't get me wrong. They would give me advice on specific things. Maybe you should, but it was always like that, right? Good mentors, maybe you should think about. They wouldn't tell you what you should do is X because they're not you. They don't know what you know. And if they're wise, they know they don't know what you know. You come in, again, you come in with a business idea to me and I can say, that's stupid. I don't know what you know. You can come back to me a year later and go, eh, right? Nah, 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 nah. Look at me. I got a million dollars now. You know what I'm going to say? Good on you. Great. But you said it was stupid. Of course I did. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know you could make a, bu- a business out of like paper clips or something. I, I have no idea what you're going to be successful doing. Are you happy? Is it actual success? Like, do you have the cash flow to live the life you want? And have you been able to do it without feeling like you're some kind of sleazebag? You haven't violated your own moral code. Okay, then you're a home run success. You're a home run success if that's 50,000 a year, 100,000 a year, 200,000 a year, a million a year. I don't, all the numbers are successful. If they do that for you and you haven't short sold yourself on what you really want and you have resiliency and redundancy built into it, you're a success. And it doesn't matter what I think. That's real mentorship. You can't sell that. Stay away from those people. I'll make you successful for $5,000 a month. No, they won't. No, they won't. Now, it might work, air quotes work, right? And that since you're so invested, you're spending the money, you feel like you have to do the things, so you do the things, but you could have kept the money and done the things, but you didn't. And nothing these people teach is publicly available. None of it. Not a word of it. Everything you need to know about success right now, I just gave you for free, and I will not take any money for it, though a few of you did send me a uh, super chat. T River at four ninety nine. Thank you. And Wavehead forty nine ninety nine. Fifty bucks. Thank you. I will take that because that's value for value exchange. You decided to do it. I didn't charge you for it, right? Thank you so much for that, guys. I, I really do appreciate it. Gma Merkel said, "I never measured wealth with money. As long as you understand, it takes money to do the things that you're actually measuring, then you're okay, right?" Because that's great. That's great. But it also can lead to a lot of excuse making. Don't let that happen. Otherwise, you're good to go. But real mentors will always tell you to just get it done. Go do it. 
Learn from it. When you, when you, when you go out and you do something, you get something infinitely valuable. Now, if you risk your whole life's savings on something stupidly and lose it, that's not what I'm saying. But you figure out a calculated risk and go take it. Win, lose, or draw. You're going to get the most valuable thing you can get, more valuable than anything Jack Spirico or anybody else will ever tell you. Real world fucking feedback. You just made contact with the enemy. You're going to get shot at. Your plan will not go as exactly as you've intended. No battle plan ever does. Right? You're going to get shot at. Shit's going to go wrong. The guy covering your flank's going to die. But you get feedback. And since you're not actually getting killed, you're not, it's all a metaphor, then you could say, now I know something I didn't know. And that could be, now I need to change course, or this would have worked if I had done this. You really believe that? Don't say, well, you know, if I would have done that, it would have. No, shut up. That's loser language. Okay, then go do it and do that this time and prove that it would have worked. And if it works a little bit better but not enough, then you learn again. You want mentorship? You want real mentorship? Here it is. Go do shit. Life will kick your ass and good mentors kick your ass. Hope you guys enjoyed your ass kicking today. There's more where this comes from. I've said when I go away for a while, I come back on fire. Yeah, it's only starting. What you're seeing today is tinders. I'd say by the end of next week, you're going to see full on fires. Well, next week we're going to be going into the workshop pretty quick. But by the end of next week, you're going to see full on fire. All right. So I do have one question here. Builder of Castles says, long ago, five minutes with Jack, the hardest thing to start a business in is something that no one else knows about. What do you do with something that everyone knows and doesn't believe can exist? Not sure exactly how you're asking that. I think what you're saying is if you're starting a business for a thing, and clear it up for me, Builder, if if I'm missing it here, and it's a new thing and it benefits people, but they don't know about it then how do you market that? Feature sell, benefit sell. Sell the benefits. Sell the benefits. Don't call it what it is. Say, this thing does these things. This service provides this benefit, right? Lead with the benefits. And that's, I don't care if you're selling something that everybody knows about. Always promote the benefit, of what you have. So this is something you better be able to do if you want to be successful in business. Okay. Builder says question two, like if I had a free energy device, okay. If you actually had a free energy device and it worked, all you'd have to do is show somebody it working. You could sell all of them. As long as like the petroleum companies didn't kill you first, but you're not going to do that anyway. Right. I will tell you like, this is an example of exactly what I'm talking about though. Back in the 70s when plexiglass came out, the best job in the world you could have was a plexiglass salesman. Nobody knew what it was. Nobody knew what it was. This is how they, this is the honest to God truth, how they sold it. They'd go into a place to use glass. It was also a good fit for plexiglass because not every use of glass is a good fit. for. So any place you thought was a good fit for plexiglass, right, over glass glass, that already used glass. The salesman will walk in. And say to the person across from them, would you like to see a piece of glass that doesn't break? Yeah. Would you like to see one? Yeah. They pull out a piece of plexiglass, set it on a desk, take a rubber mallet, and smack the shit out of it a couple times and hand it to them. Then they took a purchase order out, and they said, here's the purchase order. How much would you like? Because when something really, really works, 
All you have to do is prove that it works and you're done. And if there's actually a need for it, if there's actually a desire for it, people will buy it. Right. But in the end, what you're really selling is the benefit. What is the benefit? Think about how much what I just said about plexiglass is the benefit versus the features. It's really clear. I don't have to say that. I said it's a piece of glass. Of course, it's clear as glass. It's made out of polycarbonate or whatever the hell it's made out of, you know. And synthetic engineers work forever, and they turn their propeller hats, and they set their little pocket protectors just right, and they aligned it with the moon, and they mined this out of the earth or whatever it is. 47 machines working, in, you know, generated, available in sizes, this, that, the other, right? We'll get to that. It's a piece of glass that doesn't break. See how simple the value proposition is? Whatever it is that you do, whatever it is your business builds, right? Whatever it is, when I say to you, what? give me the primary benefits of what you sell. If you have to think for three seconds, you're wrong. You're wrong. Even if the answer is right, you shouldn't have to think for three seconds. It's your business. It's your baby. You better know its fucking name. Okay? Like, you imagine somebody. Like, and, and maybe not somebody with, like, 800 kids, right? You know? Because as, as I age, I realize I start substituting names. A family man. First kid. He's got his baby with him. You know? Big enough to maybe walk a little bit with some help, but he's still the kind of kid you carry around. We'll walk up to him and go, what's his name? And the guy goes, um, uh, uh, Bill, what is wrong with this guy? Is this really your kid? Your business is your kid. You should know its name, and its name is its benefit to your customer. If you can't rattle it off without even thinking about it, you have work to do. Even if you know what it is, then you better commit it to memory. And if you have, if you have employees just like they better know your core values of your company, they better know the primary benefits. One more story and we'll finish. I worked for a company called Microtest. That's how I ended up with Fluke. Microtest unfortunately got bought out because I loved working for Microtest, right? I loved it. It's a great company. We had our big end of the year meeting, 500 plus people in this room, plus their spouses and shit for Christmas. Vice president of the company comes up, says, will every person in sales raise their hands? Right. So all of us sales VPs, we ran rep firms. So the reps aren't there. This is employees only. So there's four of us in the whole country. All four of those hands go up. There's two people that are more like catalog channel sales. Those two hands go up. There's my boss and her boss. Those two hands go up. And all of us on the outside have an inside salesperson, so those four hands go up. So about a dozen people raise their hands out of 500. And the first thing this guy Jim said is, first of all, look at those hands. Those hands feed you. Those hands feed you. When you go home and you open your Christmas presents in a couple weeks, know that those hands put the money in your pocket to put those presents in the hands of your kids. Or put the food on your table or in your refrigerator. Or pay your mortgage. Those hands did that. I'm not saying anybody in here. What they do is incredibly important. I'm saying that those people fed you. Then he said, but we should all be feeding in each other. He said, every single one of you that didn't put your hands up should be ashamed of yourself. They started looking around at each other. like He's like, every single one of you 
should be on some level a salesperson for this company. You have no idea who you know or who you don't know. You should know the company. You should know its core values. You should know the product set. You should know what we do. He goes, I bet every single one of you knows somebody that works somewhere at an office where they call somebody in IT when they have a problem and says, hey, my computer doesn't work, and we make the equipment that that guy uses. Everybody should know what you do. You shouldn't be out like you're an Amway salesman or something like that. I want to be clear. That's what Jim was saying. I should be clear. But they should know what you do. Because then when they hear somebody bitching, they can say, I know a guy. And when they call you, you're like, all I do is I work in customer service or something. But is there any one of you that can't put those 12 hands back up? All the hands go up. All those people there. Is there any one of you that can't find one of them in our company directory and say, hey, this guy's from Arizona. Kevin, it's yours. This guy's in Pennsylvania. Jack, hey, talk to this guy. Do you care about the food in your refrigerator? Do you care about the food on your table? Do you care about the presents you're giving your kids? You can see why I like working for this guy, right? Yeah. If you care about that, then you should do something for your company. Right? I was waiting for him to go JFK and say, ask not what your company can do for you, but what you can do for your company. And you might think, that's pretty arrogant, you know. But it was a great company. It was a company that people were happy to work for. You walked in the offices and people smiled all the time. People were excited about working there. Build a culture like that. If you're going to build it, I don't like employees. I'll be honest. I don't like dealing with people. I really don't. I'm not good at it. So I'm like, if I was going to build another company with employees like I've had in the past, there would have to be like a general manager, operational manager, somebody that separated me from the employees. I come in and razz everybody up, throw somebody out a window and leave. Day-to-day employee management, not my strong suit. But if you're going to go through it, if you're going to have employees, there's a couple of things I believe. One, you should be building a business design that has an extra strategy if you choose to, that you can sell it when you retire. If you can't sell it when you retire, I'm not saying you should, you should be able to. Because there's a lot of sweat equity, there's a lot of bullshit, there's a lot of harshness in, in building a company of employees. There's a lot of frustrations. Two, you should be able to take a vacation for two weeks and come back and everything should be fine. You don't have the right guy just below you if you can't do that. You need to be able to walk away and enjoy your life after you build something that big. I'll tell you, there's a lot of people that can't. I leave this place, it falls apart. You got work to do, buddy. I don't care if you're if you're selling $50 million a year, you can't take a two-week vacation. You got some work to do. And it isn't just trying to make the number go up. Because you haven't solved the actual problem. The actual problem is you can't step away. Solopreneurs, we're going to have to work in our businesses all the time. We have to find other ways, like rewinds, pre-recorded shows, stuff like that in my business. But if you have employees, you better be able to step away. But you better build a, a, a culture in that company where that employee wants to come to work. They're not just grateful to be employed and have a job. They're like, I could work somewhere else. I want to be here. And then if you're that person, if, if you like you listen to something, that's great. I don't want to build a business. I don't want that. That's fine. Then you better look at it as defending your house. Right. We used to play sports. We play a home game. Coach would say shit. They don't come into our house and tell, push us around and tell us what to do. This is our house. We'll defend it. You should if you actually love the company you work for. 
then you should see it that way. And being a vocal outpouring to, to the, just to everybody around you without being annoying, without being an amateur. So I work for this company. And this is what we do. You'll get referrals. In fact, you'll get more referrals than a lot of salespeople because the salesman are like, oh, he's a salesperson. Run away. Right. A lot of people feel that way. Guy pushes a broom, but he works at a company that does this thing. I need a thing. He knows the people to do the thing. Build that. And if you're not going to build it, then be it. Anyway, with that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Normally, this is where I tell you here's an item you can buy. Today, this is where I tell you there's an item you could have bought. Last week, I had this item of the day up, the Soundcore P2 wireless earbuds. I love these things. I've sold literally thousands of them as an affiliate uh, over the years. I've never had a complaint about them ever. They normally sell for between 35 and 50 bucks. Um, and I would say they compare very well to like uh, Apple Airbuds that sell for about 150. So they're a good deal. They were on sale in a renewed program today for $20. $20. I put it out. They're gone. Whatever amount of inventory they had, it's gone. There is no more. Um, when you look at them, and I'll switch over to this tab here. You can see that it says see all buying options. And when I click that now, they're $53. I would not buy these for $53 uh, used because new, you can usually get them for less than that. But the renewed program at Amazon is awesome. And it's something you should know about anyway, if you don't already know about it. Let me explain some of you about Amazon and Amazon renewed. This is a good life save, life hack and money saving hack. Amazon doesn't fix or rebuild anything. They don't have time to especially something you're going to sell for 20 bucks. They're not getting like a bad mixer or something or a drill in and having some technician rewire it. All renewed is they sold a thing that got returned with Amazon's liberal return policy and they put it back in the box and they're selling it again and they can't sell it as new. So they come up with a term renewed. Basically it means returns. And so when you're going to buy anything, check out Amazon renewed. If you go to my site and type in renewed, you'll see an article about that. You can click the link and get over to Amazon Renewed and see what's available. Not all the time you're buying something will it be there, but when it is, it's totally worth buying. It's like buying something brand new. But the bigger thing I wanted to uh, point out about this, since I can't sell you the product today, right? I want to sell you on, if you're not already on our Telegram channel or group, join it. You can go to the site right now, find this article and click on Telegram group or Telegram channel in the listing that says it's already sold out. The difference is the group, like it'll be going off all the time. You'll have everybody in the community talking to each other. You'll see all the conversations. The channel, you'll only get the two or three things a day I put out. So it's kind of like getting text messages from me that you can shut off anytime. Uh, it certainly could be worth joining both of them if you wanted to. Uh, but get, if you do that, then you won't miss opportunities like this because that was a pretty good deal. I thought I was going to sell a lot more of them than I did because I didn't know they would sell out that quick. That's why I put them up today because it would have been a great Christmas gift. Uh, but hopefully that helps you uh, out one way or another, even if you can't get the item of the day to know about that Amazon Renewed program. And remember, you can always help support the show and the work that we do. Just do your shopping starting at tspaz.com. If you like today's episode and you think it was uh, worth about 18 cents, and God, I hope it was, uh, you can become a member of the Member Support Brigade. That's 50 bucks a year, 18 cents an episode. Support the show. Use the discounts. Get your money back. I don't believe in taking. That's what I want to finish today with. Like, if you really want to be successful in life, 
Never be a taker. Never be a taker. That doesn't mean that you hate money or you don't accept money from people. But never be a taker. Never have somebody after they did business with you feel that you got more than they did in the deal. And you might think, where's the profit come from? The profit comes from providing so much value that that person can never feel that you took from them. Like you need to see yourself when you run a business, a brand, a company as a leader and leaders never take from their people. If you take from your people, you're not a fucking leader. You're a thief. You're a shyster. You might even be successful, but you're not a leader. People that build exceptional businesses, those businesses are built on and as leaders. You build a successful team. You lead a team. You don't drive a team. You don't push a team. You fucking lead a team or you're shit. Whatever success you have, you're lucky to have. And it will be infinitely limited and it will be infinitely short. It will run out. Any way it will run out. But if you're a leader and you never take, you'll be infinitely unlimited in prosperity. And that might sound like some Tony Robbins shit or something. It's not. It's just hard facts. Why would anybody not want to do business with you when they feel after doing business with you that they're better for having done business with you? Not like, oh, I had to. I got some legal bullshit I'm dealing with right now. It's not that big of a deal, but it's going to cost me a couple grand. I need it done, so I'll do it, but I have to do it. But I don't feel like I'm getting more than I put in. I feel like I have to solve a problem. They could solve the problem. Okay, the problem's solved. Go on with my life. Begrudgingly, here's your check. But if somebody had come to me, let's say from a legal angle or a tax angle, and said, hey, look, I got an offer for you. Here it is. And by the time I'm done with it, I'm going to give them two, three grand. And they're going to put 50 grand in my hands. Even 1,000 more than I put out, I'm going to get back. I want to do business with you again. I don't have any business with you. You call me. You call me when you do. And and you hold on. I'm going to take your picture. For those that don't know what that means, if, if you're in my phone, I might answer it. If you're not in my phone, I'm not going to answer it. If you're in my phone and your contact record has a picture, and when you're, when a phone rings, I look at it, I see a picture, and it's across the room. I can't even see who you are, but there's a picture there. I'm either answering it if I can or immediately checking the voicemail and calling you back. That's one of my filtering mechanisms, right? If you do that for me in a business relationship, your picture is going in the phone, right? I will take your call in the future. That's how you build success. That's how you build a business. Thank you guys so much. Uh, for hanging out with me today. I really appreciate it. Uh, I hope you guys, again, enjoyed today's show. It went longer than I intended, but I think that's because I just love this subject so much. And I really do hope you guys understand that I do give everything that I have when I talk about this. And I do that because it is important to me that you guys have success in your life. I love making money. I'm not going to lie about it. I do. I think people say money is the, the root of all evil. They're missing it. Completely, it's the love of money. In other words, being willing to do things for money that you normally wouldn't do, not because they're inconvenient or you don't like them, but because they go against what you really believe in. You have to violate your morals. That's the love of money being the root of all evil. Money is a good thing. 
Money's a good thing. But what, what really does it for me? What makes me feel like a wealthy man is that at least once a week, I look over at this other computer where I do my email because I separate my email from my laptop. So when I walk out of this room, I have a separation from my work. That's why I do it. I look over on this other computer right here and I open up my email program and I start going through my mails and I read my hate mails and I laugh and I delete them or sometimes I put them online and mock you or whatever. And I see all the spam. I see all the legitimate like customer service shit and all. And I get an email that says, Jack, you're a jerk. And I smile because I know it's going to be a good one. And it says, two years ago, I started a business doing X, Y, Z. And today I have two employees. My kids work in my business, whatever it is. I just quit my job. I'm like, that is why I do what I do. So when I talk about this, I'm probably going to go a little long. I'll catch you guys tomorrow. Tomorrow, we're going to have Kenny G on the podcast. No, we won't be listening to the saxophone or whatever it is. Not that Kenny G. He's using a pseudonym name because we're going to be talking about encounters with law enforcement and why a lot of times you need to keep your mouth shut and a lot of other things that can go wrong when you're dealing with law enforcement and why you should worry about it. It's going to be a fantastic interview. Please tune in. I'll catch you tomorrow with that one. You should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.